Hello, and welcome back to the JPO podcast. This is part two of our May-June episode, and as always, we'll spend the next 20 minutes reviewing featured material from the most recent print episode of the journal. I'm Carter Clement, broadcasting to you from Children's Hospital in beautiful uptown New Orleans. And with no further ado, I'll hand things over to my co-host Craig to dive into the material. This is Craig Lauer from University of North Carolina. The next article I'll discuss is titled Gradual Deformity Correction and Blount Disease from the group at Duke University with senior author Robert Fitch. In this study, they review their degree of correction and complications for children undergoing tibia with possible fibula osteotomy and gradual frame correction for Blount's disease. They reviewed 51 limbs and 43 patients treated by the senior author over a 16-year period, and overall they report excellent correction with improvement of the medial proximal tibial angle and the mechanical axis deviation to normal values at frame removal, which was mostly maintained except for seven patients who developed recurrent deformity. In the sagittal plane, the initial procurvatum, which is measured by a posterior tibial slope of 74, did not change or correct with treatment. There was a 40% rate of pin site infections two of which progressed osteomyelitis, in addition to two perineal nerve palsies and three instances of skin irritation, which required return to the OR for pin adjustment. I'm joined now by Dr. Elizabeth Hubbard, a pediatric orthopedist at Duke and one of the authors on the study. Uh, Liz, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So in the paper, you all note that this series adds to the already strong evidence that external fixation and gradual correction is a safe and effective way to deal with difficult deformity. How do you all decide on which patients warrant this approach for Vons disease rather than alternatives such as guided growth or an acute corrective osteotomy? Sure. So an acute osteotomy is a really great option for someone who has maybe a uniplanar deformity, um, so just the varus, um, and probably a mild degree of deformity where you'd feel safe correcting it with uh, plate and screws without significant risk for compartment syndrome or neurologic injury. Um, and guided growth is, is an excellent option for patients who still have several years of growth remaining. There have been a number of studies that have reported implant failure and failure of clinical correction in patients with adolescent blount disease specifically, especially as the deformity is greater and the patients are tend to be heavier. Personally, I've recommended gradual correction with a hexapod frame for patients who have less than two years of growth remaining and greater than 10 degrees of varus. I'm also much more likely to recommend gradual correction for patients who have multiple deformities such as associated limb length discrepancy, significant torsional deformity, in addition to the varus, so that you can address all the components with one treatment plan. So is it safe to say then the patients that were chosen for the gradual correction and were actually reported on this study were probably the more difficult patients? Absolutely. So pretty impressive results in light of all that. You all did mention, though, the difficulty in correcting the tibial slope uh, in this study in that there was still a remaining posterior tibial slope of, I think, 74 degrees. Um, In retrospect, do you have any tips on how to better address this? I think it's hard to determine how much of of a true clinical problem the isolated procurvatum is. I think we know that procurvatum and recurvatum are problems in patients with ligamentous laxity or insufficiency of the PCL and ACL. But in someone who has intact ligaments, you know, long term, I think we still think that any kind of malalignment, whether it's the coronal or the sagittal plane, 
places the patient at risk for chondral damage and further joint problems. And so our goal was always to address all of the components of the deformity. That being said, we had a significant difficulty correcting the procrevanum. And so personally, when I'm treating patients with lamp disease and hexapod frames, I really critically, at the end of deformity correction, look at the lateral x-ray and remeasure, and I'm much more likely to run a secondary corrective program to address residual procrevatum in this population than in any of my other populations of patients. And, and then um, the one complication that was fairly consistent, I think 40% of patients had a pin site infection, only two progressed osteomyelitis, but I was curious what the method of managing pins was uh, in this study, and then do you have any tips for the rest of us on avoiding pin complications if we go about this method? treatment is the combination of saline and betadine around the pin and wire sites and changing of the gauze usually every day. Pin site complications are one of the main problems with any kind of external fixator. It really starts in the operating room. If you place a pin or a wire in such a way that there's a lot of strain on the surrounding tissues, then that predisposes that tissue specifically to undergoing some necrosis, and that can lead you down a path towards a problem with that pin and that wire site with infection. Well, I really want to thank you for taking the time to join me this morning and discuss the paper, and thanks for the work that you and your co-authors put into this. I'm hoping our readers got a lot out of it. Thank you so much. I, I hope so, too. We really enjoyed the study, and thank you for having us. Next, we will discuss an article entitled Open Surgical Release of Post-Traumatic Elbow Contractures in Children and Adolescents from lead author Samantha Piper and senior author Dr. Charles Goldfarb from UCSF and Washington University, respectively. So the purpose of this study was to discuss the short to midterm follow-up of an open surgical release for post-traumatic elbow contractures in terms of range of motion and complications. This is a retrospective review of all patients less than 21 years old from these two institutions. They included 26 patients in the final study, ages range from 5 to 19 years old, with an average of 29 months between their initial trauma and the capsulotomy surgery. The total follow-up was 42 months post-operative. Patients were selected if they were considered non-functional in terms of their range of motion following conservative measures such as PT and progressive bracing, and the functional need was determined individually for each patient. Their preoperative and postoperative evaluations included goniometer measurements for range of motion, as well as noting complications. The procedure was somewhat varied based off the pathology. It typically included a medial or lateral or combined approach, utilizing prior incisions where possible, followed by sharp capsulotomies anteriorly or posteriorly, as well as excision of heterotopic ossification, possible removal of implants, and ligament repair or reconstruction when intraoperative instability was noted. Dynamic X-Fix and even radial head arthroplasty had to be used in select cases. If the patient was noted to have heterotopic ossification as their major pathology, then endomethacin was used in the postoperative period for prophylaxis. In terms of their results, the mean arc of motion improved from 58 degrees to 107 degrees in terms of the flexion extension arc, and 66 degrees to 131 degrees in terms of pronosupination arc, which amounts to improvements of 49 degrees and 65 degrees, respectively. They subanalyzed patients that were less than a year out from their injury when they had the release surgery versus those that were over a year from injury, and they noted that flexion extension did not vary based off timing. However, pronosupination did improve more if performed in the less than one year time point. Continuous passive motion machines did not significantly change the increase in the motion arc postoperatively. In terms of complications, they noted no postoperative infections. There were two instances of ulnar neuropathy, which resolved on their own, and there was recurrence of contracture in some cases. So the authors conclude that capsulotomy 
and release surgery can be an effective treatment for patients who struggle to regain elbow motion following elbow trauma, at least in adolescents and children. Due to the rarity of this procedure, the sample size remains small, so sub-analysis, such as determining whether CPM is a benefit or what subsets of the procedure are the most important, are not really possible. Also, we didn't have any patient-rated outcomes. Despite these small limitations, I feel that this paper presents really encouraging data with regards to a very difficult clinical problem, and I'm grateful to the authors for presenting this. Thanks, Craig. Next, I'll hand things off to another co-host, Josh Holt, a pediatric orthopedist at the University of Iowa. Thank you, Carter. We'll now turn our attention to the manuscript out of Boston entitled Radiation Prophylaxis for Hip Salvage Surgery and Cerebral Palsy. Can we reduce the incidence of heterotopic ossification? Given the well-known difficulties with heterotopic ossification after proximal femoral resection in patients with cerebral palsy, the author set out to assess the short-term safety and efficacy of single-dose radiation prophylaxis prior to hip salvage surgery. In this retrospective case control series, 23 patients with 35 surgically treated hips over a 21-year period were dichotomized into one of two groups. 17 patients had received 7.5 gray of external beam radiation therapy preoperatively, while the remaining 18 patients did not. The incidence, size of, and classification of heterotopic ossification were determined, as well as surgical complications with at least six months radiographic and clinical follow-up. Of note, hip salvage surgery consisted of either a proximal femoral resection below the lesser trochanter, referred in the manuscript as the castle procedure, or as a McHale procedure, described as a femoral head resection with associated subtrochanteric valgus-producing osteotomy. Heterotopic ossification developed in 83% of hips in the non-radiation cohort, compared with only 35% in the radiation cohort. Reoperation was required in two hips of the non-radiation cohort and zero hips in the radiation group. Radiation was associated with 900 square millimeter decrease in heterotopic ossification size at maturity and less severe McCarthy classification scores when compared with the non-radiation group. Multivariate regression analysis found that hips in the non-radiation group had 13 times higher odds of developing HO than hips in the radiation group. Although underpowered to determine a significant association between the type of salvage procedure performed and HO development, there was notable difference in HO rates between the two procedures. While none of the nine patients who received radiation prior to a McHale procedure developed HO, six of the eight patients undergoing the Castle procedure developed HO despite preoperative radiation. I'd like to now welcome Dr. Shore, the senior author of the manuscript, to the program. Morning. Morning. So this is a really great study that certainly adds needed evidence to the literature that single-dose radiation prophylaxis be used safely and effectively in pediatric patients undergoing surgery of the proximal femur, at least in the short term. Despite this evidence, parental concern remains undoubtedly present and most certainly requires discussion of the risks and benefits with parents and their families. So, Dr. Shore, what counseling and conversation do you have with parents regarding the risks of single-dose radiation prophylaxis? Um, you know, I think it's a great uh, question and it's a, it's a continual concern Whenever there's any kind of exposure uh, for children, uh, I think parents are, you know, pretty anxious just about a plain x-ray. And a lot of uh, the anxiety comes from, um, you know, misinformation or lack of information. So, you know, in my hands, a lot of information is provided to the family just in terms of what the true risks are. If we look into the literature, 
there's really only been two reported cases of malignancy or uh, adverse effects associated with radiation prophylaxis for HO, and, and those have been in uh, adults. The reality is in most of the kids that you're thinking about salvage surgery, they're older, so they're really not kids anymore. They're often in their adolescence to young adulthood, and so those risks would be comparable to what we have in the adult population for HO when we're thinking about, you know, complex uh, orthopedic interventions that high, have a high risk of uh, heterotopic ossification. So, I explained to the parents that while there is a small risk, uh, it's a very low risk. And the challenge is that the idea of what we're doing with our surgery to reduce pain, and that's why we're doing a salvage intervention, the presence of heterotopic ossification can really affect pain. And so I explained to the parents that, you know, our goal here is to try and take pain away, and we want to try and do as much as we can to mitigate that. And, and using the radiation prophylaxis, is, you know, in our hands, one of the strategies that we um, employ. Oh, great. That's certainly an important conversation to have, given the uh, concerns that many patients and families will bring with them to the visit. And although underpowered to show any statistical significance, the difference in HO rates between the two salvage procedures and results are intriguing. So do you personally think that this difference is indeed a true difference? And if so, what are your thoughts as to why the risk would be different between the two yeah, I think that's a great question, um, and I think it's still open for discussion. I think we need larger, uh, larger numbers to really answer some of these questions. And you know, hopefully, the uh, work that we're doing with the cerebral palsy hip outcomes project can help uh, shed more light on this moving forward. I think that the likelihood of HO um, is. Uh, probably a combination of patient factors and surgical factors. The patient factors are hard to modify, but the surgical factors I think we can modify. So clearly I think, um, you know, we sometimes do these interventions uh, with two surgeons on the table operating on each leg. And each surgeon has a slightly different approach, and we can see even between surgeons there are some differences in, in the incidence of HO. So I think... Uh, respecting tissue planes, uh, minimizing uh, muscle damage are very important principles to adhere to in this situation to prevent heterotopic ossification. Uh, in the procedures that we had here, in my hands, I think the McHale does have a lower rate of heterotopic ossification based on the technique and uh, the amount of um, kind of stripping that's required to uh, facilitate what you need to do. So the valgus subtrochosteotomy with femoral head resection seems to have a slightly lower rate of HO compared to uh, castle procedure. Wonderful. That's great insight. Thank you. And one final question for you, Dr. Shores. Have the results of your study changed the clinical practice of your group in Boston? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. So I think there are a couple things that are kind of buried in this paper that... Um, probably are hard to pick out as a typical reader, but whenever you're trying to do a new intervention, it's all about how you operationalize something. So, you know, the new intervention in this study was trying to get radiation prophylaxis available at the time of surgery, um, and that's not offered at our hospital. So the kids had to go downstairs into another hospital to get the radiation prophylaxis, and we um, experimented at any point along that 72-hour kind of golden window, and really what we found was the most predictable way to 
achieve uh, what you wanted was just to be done preoperatively. So just before the surgery, they go in and get their heterotoxication uh, prophylaxis. And if that means that the OR starts a little bit late on that morning, maybe by 30 minutes, that seems to work better than trying to do it in the postoperative period when the child had more lines and was more medically complex. So uh, I think that's definitely something that we discovered during the study and that's changed our practice. Perfect. Well, we very much appreciate your time, Dr. Schor. No, it's great. Uh, I thank you guys for doing this. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about this paper, and I appreciate your interest. We will now discuss a surgical technique article from the Mayo Clinic entitled Derotational Pronation-Producing Osteotomy of the Radius and Biceps Tendon Rerouting for Supination Contractures in Neonatal Brachial Plexus Palsy Patients. In this article, the authors describe a novel surgical technique for treatment of forearm supination deformity resulting from brachial plexus birth palsy. Supination deformity resulting from the typical poor recovery of C5 and C7 with usual recovery of C6 leads to loss of forearm pronation and difficulty with important functional activities including writing and typing on a keyboard. The authors present a combined distal biceps rerouting with derotational osteotomy of the radius to restore pronation and provide biomechanical advantage of the new biceps insertion site. Indications for the procedure include forearm supination contractures greater than 20 degrees of supination with no active or passive pronation beyond neutral. Radial head dislocation is a contraindication. The author's described surgical technique includes a straight incision over the antecubital fossa that does not need to cross the flexion crease and extends 5 to 6 centimeters distally. The forearm is maximally supinated to expose the biceps tendon insertion at the radial tuberosity. The supinator is swept radially to protect the posterior interosseous nerve. The tendon is sharply detached from the tuberosity and prepared with a modified Krakow stitch. The forearm is then maximally pronated and an oval hole is made in the cortex of the radius, 180 degrees opposite the tuberosity with a high-speed burr. A K-wire is then used to make two holes through the created tunnel and out the ulnar side of the bicepital tuberosity, through which the sutures of the prepared tendon will be passed and tied over the maintained bony bridge. This reroutes the biceps tendon into an intraosseous site and effectively converts it into a pronator rather than supinator. Radial shaft osteotomy is performed through a second incision, which includes the mid-portion of a standard Voller-Henry approach to the mid-shaft of the radius. The lateral antecubital cutaneous nerve must be identified and protected. The authors recommend use of a 2-7 LCDC plate and caution against use of the weaker semitubular plate. The goal of the osteotomy is resting forearm position at approximately 15 degrees pronation. Expected outcomes of the procedure include an arc of motion of roughly 45 degrees pronation to 30 degrees supination and sustained restoration of forearm pronation resulting from the associated biceps tendon rerouting. No new active pronation is expected as a result of this procedure if patients have no active pronation preoperatively. The authors suggest that this novel surgical technique that has not been previously described as a solution for supination contractures resulting from neonatal brachial plexus birth palsy can restore forearm pronation and provide biomechanical advantage of rerouted biceps insertion to maintain improved forearm positioning in the long term. Thank you, Josh, and a special thank you to all of our guests. That's Dr. Hubbard from Duke, Dr. Shore from Boston Children's, and from part one of this month's issue, Dr. Baldwin from CHOP and Dr. Skaggs from CHLA. 
That's it for this month. Please join us next time as we look at featured material from the July issue of JPO.